all of these things that eco-villages have been embodying and practicing for a long time are entering into the mainstream rapidly, which is very exciting. We'll see if it's fast enough to get us through the times ahead, but um, it's, it's, it's exciting, it's, it's hopeful for me. And this is my experience of a positive trend. Yeah, buenos dias. Welcome to Eco Village Library. I'm your host, Christopher Kinney, and this is a platform to discover all things relating to creating the world of the next century, or in other words, self sustaining conscious communities, all of which may take as many different forms as there are different forms of snowflakes. And with this vision, I like to simply narrow it down to one word Eco Village. But of course, you could call it whatever you want as many people do. It's just a personal preference for me. And just to keep things simple for myself. Anywho, I have a very special guest today, and she is all about the world of eco-villages. Her name is Cynthia. And Cynthia is the Communications Director at the Foundation for Intentional Community and Vice President on the Board of Trustees of the Global Eco-Village Network board member since 2015. She advises the Youth Leadership Organization of Next Gen, Next GEN, North America, which she co-founded in 2013. She consults with projects in the fields of sustainable community development and online social change networks. Her expertise is in marketing strategy, branding, digital design, and process facilitation. Now, have you ever wanted to travel about, but travel to places you've seen that are, you know, eco-villages, right? But you just don't know where to begin, or maybe you're um, scared to do it alone, or just not so sure. Well, the good thing about what Cynthia is doing right now is she's just created what's called the Eco-Village Tours. You know, bringing you to these eco-villages, and each trip is designed to guide participants on a life-changing journey with well-crafted itineraries, volunteer opportunities, sustainability education, lots of downtime, and, well, loads of fun. Because, you know, these places are fun, you know. Well, anyway, I think now it's time to get into the interview and for you to hear Cynthia herself. So, give it up. Oh, and I almost forgot, if you would like to become a Patreon and support the Eco Village podcast, please follow the link on the description below, and it'll take you to the website, and you'll see um, the perks of becoming a member, and um, yeah, feel free to reach out on an email with any questions, but anywho, let's get on with the show. What's going on in your world in terms of the things you're connected to? Okay. I've been introduced to GEN, like the Global Eco Village Network. Well, I knew about it for many, many years. And I got formally introduced when I went to Finhorn to study um, the Eco Village design course or doing the Applied Eco Village Living. I was like a couple of years ago in uh, 2016. And I've, I felt most resonation with the principles of GEN and the Global Eco Village Network and moving, propelling the Eco Village movement forward. I feel like it's just 
the thing that makes the most sense today in our world. So I'm doing whatever I can to move it forward and become a part of it and to make it a reality in my own life too, as well. And my, my professional background has been in civil engineering. So I work currently as a full-time civil engineer. Well, historically did a lot of uh, water projects like water master planning, but also a lot of um, water supply and treatment projects in in uh, low-income countries, uh, such mm-hmm. as like Central America, Latin America. So I've spent a lot of time in Latin America for several years doing projects like that. And I have a, a lot of experience with sustainable agricultural farms down there. So so the goal then to have the Ecovillage Library podcast is that I'm always learning, right? So I'm like always, you know, reading a book or talking with people and trying to become as well-rounded as I possibly can. So this is a perfect outlet for me to kind of reinforce what I'm learning and also like to make it active. It's also like a personal accountability for myself. So for example, you know, I, I, I read some interesting books, but you know, when you learn something, you know, like your retention rate is so much more higher if you have to regurgitate what you've learned. So what I've, I figure that as like a perfect excuse to start something like this, like reading a book and then like summarizing it after, but in a podcast form of what people would hear. So that forces me to, to really learn it, you know? And then also I've, you know, lately had the idea of branching out and meeting people who are also in the space and who I could learn from. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm letting it evolve into its own thing over time. And I'm, it's just seeing where it goes, <laughs> but, wow. but it's also like, I mean, you know, I'm working full time in civil engineering, so that's very a limited focus too. So this is also another ch- a chance for me to kind of branch out of that to just kind of, you know, maintain well-rounded and to um, just to make all this information also available to the average listener, which the trend is people are shying away from reading books and, and listening more. Mm. to podcasts especially and it, you know i see the podcast world as like uh, the new frontier you know it's hard to find the time to sit down be focused on reading texts but you know and a lot of people say the same thing with their lifestyles so yeah that's kind of wrapped up in a nutshell <laughs> wow great that's wonderful good thanks. for you like thanks. well you uh, first with your work i think you said in in south america latin america with these water projects and then just to be going for it creating a podcast and using it as a learning tool for yourself that's really uh, impressive i know i know of several groups that are like oh we want to do a podcast but then they never like get around to it and you're just <laughs> you know just going for it that's wonderful yeah it's difficult for sure but uh, you just got to press for i know there's magic and, and just keep on going. It's, it's all about consistency and persistence, I think. Because there's times where I'm like, oh man, the editing is too hard or oh, I just don't want to do it. But then like creating a new one, I'm like, oh man, I'm still, I'm still in the game. Yeah. <laughs> all you got to do is just keep on going. Yeah, great. But, uh, but yeah, so um, now I'm very, very curious to hear about all of your experience and work experience. You have quite the intense curriculum very inspirational, I might say. I guess we'll just dive right into it. Could you tell us what you've been doing with the Eco Village tours? Because that's something new if you started. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. This is brand new. I'm like in the process of launching it today. This oh, today? Is, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it takes a few days to launch, but this, this period of time. Um, yeah. So, Eco Village Tours is a travel company that brings people on journeys to eco villages around the world. And 
it has grown out of my experience of, oh gosh, I think like a decade now of travel to over a hundred eco-villages, intentional communities, permaculture projects on four continents. Whoa. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now's the time where I want to invite other people to come along on the journey because I have a blast every time I visit one of these places. I've built up really deep relationships with these communities. And I just want to open that up to make it more accessible for people who are already traveling. I think, you know, there's this concern about flying and traveling and the impact that has on the environment. But if you're going to be traveling anyways, you might as well make it something that's going to be impactful and educational. So I'm hoping that this can be an option for ecotourism, but taken to the next level, because mm. we're going to be immersing ourselves in communities where the people are living out these sustainability values and then individuals on the tour can then be inspired and take that back with them to their own communities where they're doing their own work to make the world a better place. So that's kind of the mission behind Ecovillage Tours. Sounds awesome. And, and what if like when you um, arrive to these Ecovillages, would it be like work exchange where people have the chance to be involved with the current projects happening there? Be, me, myself being a participant, what would I expect being on the journey with you? A little bit of all of the above. I think we're trying to create a well-rounded experience where there's like lots of time just to relax and like be on retreat, be on vacation, take time to slowly grow accustomed to the land and the culture, the language, as well as some opportunities to directly work with the people there to take tours, uh, hear and learn from their experiences, uh, work in the garden, volunteer on a project, uh, as well as to have many day trips traveling to other areas. So for example, the first trip we're going to be doing is in Slovenia. It'll be this June 12th to the 22nd. And it happens to fall, or we planned it to fall, on summer solstice, yeah? And in Slovenia, there's this very special tradition around summer solstice where um, villagers get together with their families, children, they all dress in white and walk down the fields collecting wildflowers that they then wreathe into um, kind of crowns that everyone wears. And there's this wonderful, you know, fire and storytelling experience. Last year, the valley where we had this celebration was just filled with fireflies. So it was like little pops of light in the dark. And that's, that's some of the like really, how do I say, um, ancient yet modern sustainable celebration uh, that a participant would be able to join into. So just, just a little glimpse into that. Sign me up. Cool. <laughs> and uh, I, I know that you moved back and forth from Slovenia and Vermont. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure you have a very interesting perspective. Well, also with your previous travel experience, like you said, to over a hundred eco villages, what is your observations 
in, in like regional difference observations being half the time in North America or in the United States and the other half of the time in Slovenia and Europe. In, in regards to the creation of eco-villages, what observations have you come up with so far? Oh, this is such a great question um, because the differences between Europe, particularly the U.S., are quite uh, distinct <laughs> for me. Um, so first off, in Europe, there is the sense that the eco-village world and the mainstream are much closer together. Like, mm. it's much more when you, I mentioned when I'm in Europe, oh, I work with eco-villages, people get what that means, because many people still live in villages. There are these, um, you know, places that have a distinct center and many of their villages are created with stone. So there's this legacy and permanence and tradition of the village way of life. It's not something that's so um, forgotten as it is, I think, in many U.S. communities. Mm. Um, and so, and, and there's a lot of government support for eco-village projects. The Erasmus Plus funding is a program that is intended in part to support these kind of sustainable community efforts. So, for example, um, there's this initiative called CLIPS in Europe, Community Learning Incubator for Sustainability. And this um, program is fully funded by the government and it's intended to incubate eco-villages essentially. Now contrast <laughs> no that kidding. with the US, like, you know, our president doesn't even believe in climate change. So, uh, so it's sort of like this, um, this drastic disconnect where it's so difficult for communities in the US to get funding, to get resources, to get support from their local communities. Um, uh, and I think that has to do with the political and social context of the U.S. Um, it's, it's a struggle for many nonprofit organizations that are trying to create a, a better world. It's just, it's just yeah. challenging right now. Um, and what I was alluding to earlier, we haven't, I, I, I feel as if in the U.S., intentional communities, eco-villages, these are terms that still have a lot of stereotypes associated with them. Totally. So I work for the, the Foundation for Intentional Community, and our website, ic.org, is one of the uh, largest resources and most visited resources for information about intentional communities. We get about 40,000 unique visitors, first time visitors to our website every month. Oh, and wow. yeah, and the number one search term that people are typing into Google is commune. Mm -hmm. So even though like when you're kind of like within the circle, like you think, oh, you know, communes are there and they exist and they're wonderful places, but it's not like I wouldn't use that term uh, right off the bat, because I know right. the, the connotations that that term has, right? Um, like you know, hippies off in the woods, smoking <laughs> pot or something. Um, but meanwhile, that's what people are searching for. That's what they. That's what they're. Uh, they're like, okay, I'm. I'm in my office. I'm in my job. I'm in my, you know, 
my commute and it's not a satisfying life for me. So what's an alternative? Oh, I think there's something called communes. Maybe they still exist. Let me type it into Google. Um, and then they find us and then they're like, oh, wait, this is something so much more. There's mm. all different ways that people are choosing to live differently and live together to um, help create change in the world. And, uh, yeah. I've been super fascinated by that, that difference of just simple vocabulary of communes versus eco-village, particularly here in the United States. Do you know of any Americans who are like familiar with the term of eco-village? Like, do you guys get any searches for eco-villages specifically or is just, just mostly communes? Oh, no, it's, it's definitely also eco-villages. Um, you know, there's a number of communities that call themselves eco-villages. I'm here right now in, in Vermont, and the most well-known eco-village that's nearby is Ithaca Eco-Village in New York. Oh, right. Um, but then up, up further north in Canada, there's La Cité Ecologique, which means the ecological city in French. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, it's a really, it's like over 100 people living in this fabulous um eco-village place. Um, and so I, I think that those communities in particular are very well connected to GEN, which is the Global Eco-Village Network. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a significant subset of Americans who are also familiar with that term, maybe because they read about it in a book or they visited Europe and they find and connect with these uh, communities that identify as eco-villages in particular. And so like for Americans that identify with this eco-village vision and they, they're inspired by what the European side, which is more close to the mainstream, and they want to bring that as a reality here in the States, but with given our predicament, what advice do you have to make that more of a reality like through which entity we know the federal government's probably not the place to <laughs> seek for help so what are the what are the alternatives i know you work with gen north america and gen you're also the vice president of the board of trustees right of global eco village network Correct. as well so yeah so what, what would you say in respect to that Oh, well, well, all of these organizations are fabulous and have websites, maybe, you know, in, in somewhere in your description, we can list the, the different websites where people can get information. But totally. the, the best thing to do is to connect with a community in your region, because they're going to have the most experience with working with municipalities navigating the legal structure, the ownership structures for that particular region, because it does mm. vary quite a bit state by state. Um, and there are some communities that have really done pioneering work to break through um, codes that might limit the types of natural building you can do or composting toilets. So those are good communities in particular to reference when you are in the formation stage of your community and you're running into obstacles in terms of what the region where you live allows you to do. Um, one in particular is OUR Eco Village. They're in Canada in um, 
uh, on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and they have done incredible work to really uh, work with the government so that they become not only something that is accepted, but really celebrated by the Canadian government and held up as a model for ecological design. This is a this is a good one, um, and there's a, there's a lot more, but it really depends on where you live and the particulars of your situation. Right. So it's just a matter of getting to know your region, the organizations within that region, and then just finding the loopholes within those regulations and codes that are already existing. For like, for example, in Coos County, Oregon, it's illegal, strictly illegal to live in a yurt, for example. Oh my so God. It's like, yeah. Oh yeah. I've had this conversation with a building official just uh, this past week. And so it's like, uh, and I know like with the land laws too, it's very, very difficult to have multiple occupancies in any given um, land or private land or something like that. So, uh, I guess, yeah, I, it would be just be a matter of kind of like just exploring those loopholes and, and just taking advantage of that, I guess, you know? Well, in your case in Oregon, have you connected much with Lost Valley? Lost Valley. Lost oh. Valley. They're in, they're in Oregon. I think they're near Eugene. And no. they, oh, they've been around for decades. And Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is a community that might have a lot of experience, um, you know, dealing with the same challenges and, you know, yeah, definitely connect with them. Oh, geez. All right. <laughs> well, yeah. And that brings me because I would, I would use, for example, I wanted to see, okay, what's in my region? I would mm -hmm. go to ic.org, but also GEN as well. What's the difference between those two organizations? Since you work with both of them, what's, how do they compare? <laughs> Uh, well, I'll just say that one of the projects we're working on right now is to um, collate these databases of communities so that we have a more comprehensive map, because you'll find that some communities are on one map, but not the other. Mm. So if you go to ic.org, on the top menu bar is communities directory, and that mm. map will show you communities around the world, but we have a particular strength in North America. That's where we have the most communities listed. And you'll see the map, you can click on the different dots and see the communities, you can zoom into your location, and then you can also do an advanced search which is a form that asks you all kinds of questions. Do you want to look for a community that's vegan or that's older than 10 years or has more than 20 members, for example? Mm -hmm. uh, and we have intentional communities listed. So this is co-housing, eco-villages, a variety of different community types, also student co-ops, um, these, uh, yeah, co-living co developments are up and coming, especially in urban areas. And then if you go to ecovillage.org, that's Jen's website, the Global Ecovillage Network. And this has more communities around the world. It really has a much stronger global focus. So if you're looking for a community in Asia or Africa, that map will probably have more of what you're looking for. And I have to say, um, the gen map is um, good for researching and finding places, um, but the data isn't, uh, isn't monitored 
as much as FICs. I think that's something that we're working on in Gen is to make it a more full resource. So I really recommend checking out both maps and cross-referencing because some might have different information. Okay. I'm sorry. I have to make a plug for another map. Please do. Please do. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like when I start talking about them, I have to mention them all. So another really <laughs> good map and resource is New Mundo. Uh, oh, that's Mundo. right. Yeah. I just discovered New Mundo a couple months ago. So I got pretty oh. excited when I saw that uh, you were involved in that work. I think it's a really, really well done uh, yeah. website. So yeah. please continue. I agree. <laughs> New Mundo's map is much more geared towards the uh, younger traveler, digital nomad type of person, festival goer. Not only do they have a lot of what they call impact centers on their site, they also have events and program opportunities listed there. Um, so it's also a great resource and they particularly have a strength in Central America. Mm. Um, so if you're wanting to travel to that region, that's a good, good resource for that. And then there's a few other ones um, I'll mention briefly. Ecobasa is a network and a map that you can visit on their website. And they've geared their whole organization around the gift economy. So supporting people in traveling for free via work exchange or other arrangements to these different communities. And they're mostly based in Europe. Oh, yes. wow. So those, those four essentially are, are good maps. I think I have an article about this on my website. Okay. So for a listener, maybe that's not familiar with, maybe it's just, just brand new to this whole eco village reality. And you just mentioned gift economy. How would you explain that to somebody who's never heard that before? Gift economy is a concept that proposes an alternative to a way of exchange that's based on money as the primary value or means of exchange, and instead proposes that we can build relationships and exchange with each other on um, uh, via other means, uh, barter potentially, but even more so just based on gift, gifting freely. Um, and the idea is that when I gift something to you, it's not like you will then need to be indebted to me and give something back, but rather when we're part of a gift economy, you can go on to gift to something that to someone else. And I trust in the overall system that our needs will be met because we're in this, um, this gift economy. So that's like the big vision. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think how that plays out practically on a smaller scale is just having really strong relationships of trust with other people so that you don't need to rely on, on money as your primary means of exchange. And there's so much beautiful work that has been done around this concept. I'll just mention two um, resources briefly. One is Charles Eisenstein and his work. Uh, he has a fabulous book called Sacred Economics. It's a bit of, bit of a, a big book, but you can find lots of videos online about him or articles to give you a sense for like the philosophical structure behind the gift economy. Mm -hmm. And then another example I'll mention is um, um, with the... Um, 
the schools, the free schools, the gift economy schools that have um, been developed in India with Manish Jan. He has created um, in the Udaipur region of India these, um, I'm trying to remember the name, Swarsh, uh, Swarsh University. And this is a university that is based on the gift economy. So young people attending the school don't need to pay anything uh, to attend. And they have this very interesting model worked out around it. Um, but it's a beautiful example of gift economy. And Manish has also done a lot of work around this concept in developing it. Wow. I never heard that second one before. Oh, yeah. I, um, I visited um, India a few years ago and spent some time um, with Manish at, at his um, center. And he also runs something every year called the Unconference, Learning Societies Unconference, I believe. And I was one of the few foreigners at a gathering with over a thousand Indians who are all involved in alternative systems of one kind or another, whether it's education or health. And, um, and this conference was all based on the gift economy. So there was no set fee. People gifted um, money or resources to put on the event. The venue was gifted. The food was gifted. And, and the concept is that you, you don't plan this conference very far in advance. The intention is to have it be a pop-up conference to mimic what might happen if we needed to mobilize people and resources in a, um, in a case where there was a crisis and we needed to do that. And so it's Whoa. like both a celebration and a practice of resilience. So wow. just put a plug out for them. Yeah, they're really, really awesome. Awesome. Oh man, you've just opened up the rabbit hole for me. I'm going to dive right in. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, because that's something that I think about all the time, because I know we're in very particular times right now. And I know it worries a lot of people, especially in the state of the overall global economy, that a lot of people see the deep end ahead. It's, it's cool to look at those examples of quick mobilization and what people could do in that situation, if need be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Also, yeah, for the, uh, for the gift economy, that's something that the, the Native Americans and indigenous people typically lived by, right? Yes. As far as we know, many, many indigenous peoples were living in uh, reciprocal uh, economies. So it wasn't like the hunters went out and got the animal and brought it back and only they ate it. They operated based on reciprocity. So the, the food was shared. No one was left to starve. It was a much more um, a system of deep, deep sharing with each other. And I think that's what modern day intentional communities are trying to replicate. Mm. It's really this concept of sharing. Not everyone needs to own their own lawnmower. Not everyone needs to own their own washing machine. You can share those things and it'll help us a long way in lowering our consumption and being more sustainable. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And since your involvement in the Eco-Village movement, how have you uh, seen the whole movement progress over time? Since you first jumped in and until this present day, how do you see it has evolved and where do you see it going? Uh, well, 
I'm still pretty young, so I can't say I have the full um, perspective. Uh, however, I do know that through our research at FIC and through our directory, we have seen an increase in the number of communities listed. It, I believe that the number of communities listed is like doubling every five years, eight years or so. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. um, yeah. And then I can speak just anecdotally from my experience kind of getting involved with this pretty, pretty young. Like I visited my first eco village when I was 15 and wow. I, and I didn't grow up at all with parents who were into this stuff. They, they love me dearly, but I don't think they still understand what the heck I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, uh, I really found this alternative world through a lot of reading, a lot of time in nature, and then, um, and then travel. I was, I was really privileged to be able to travel and start going to these places early on in life. And just on the books, though, I remember going into Barnes & Noble when I was a kid, and I adored the particular corner of Barnes and Noble that had all of the nature books oh, yeah. on it or like, <laughs> you know, I remember I found um, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. And this of just course. Opened my world to the whole food system and how messed up it is. Uh, and, and, and then now going into a bookstore, it's like, like, as a kid, I would have just like lost it on all of the books that are available today on permaculture, growing your own food, making your own medicine. Um, it, it's just, I feel like it's an explosion, even with organic food. Um, you know, this, this whole, all of these things that eco-villages have been embodying and practicing for a long time are entering into the mainstream rapidly which is very exciting. We'll see if it's fast enough to get us through the times ahead, but um, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's, it's hopeful for me. And this is my experience of a positive trend. Oh yeah, totally. And it's overwhelming too, that the amount of information books out there, mm-hmm. man, I, it's like, it's an everyday struggle for me. I'm like, Oh man, I want to get through this book, this book, this book, but our downloading time in terms of like digesting the information takes a little bit longer than, <laughs> than that. But I know for me, I was like in the height of my engineering studies. I think it was like my last year studying civil engineering. And that's when I came across Bill Mollison's permaculture manual. <laughs> Diving in was like, oh my God, this is crazy. You know, and I was wondering why I wasn't in mainstream, why I wasn't being taught this in class or that's how my rabbit hole opened up and <laughs> never been out of it since. But uh, so for somebody listening to all of this and uh, let's say they're not exactly involved in this yet, but they really want to become part of the eco-village movement or they want it to be a reality for themselves, whether they want to live in one, create one, what would you say to that person like as first steps to take or advice to follow? First of all, just getting more knowledgeable, reading books, going online, researching, just trying to get a, a better sense for the the options out there and the opportunities because it is it is a 
rabbit hole, like we've been alluding to, like, there's a lot happening, there's a lot of information. And so just, just kind of like, start digging a little bit. I, I, I love researching. And so um, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you hear about a concept, go look it up, find out what what is happening. Uh, and then, and then especially try to find out what's happening in your local area. And if possible, visit a community, that's going to be the best way to network and connect with other people who are having similar ideas, have similar values, and that'll lead you to a whole range of other experiences. If you're wanting something a bit more structured, many communities also offer learning programs, whether it's a visitation program, a day-long tour, or a, a course. I know you're, you had said you've taken an Ecovillage design course. I have as well. This is a program run through um, Gaia Education. It's a month-long course that'll give you a really well-rounded sense on sustainability and Ecovillage design in particular. So yeah, so sign up for one of these educational opportunities. Hey, come on an Ecovillage tour. With hey, me. I was just going to say, join Cynthia here. <laughs> Yes, come with me. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and that's just ecovillagetours.com. Um, I also um, do a little bit on the side um, um, kind of coaching for people who are curious about this movement and want recommendations for places to travel or consider moving to. Um, so I'm, I'm available as a resource for that as well. Awesome. And let's say for those with somebody who's already started in the beginning stages of building a community, Eco Village, would you, would you have any advice for that person or that group of people? Oh, goodness. Uh, it's a well-known and sad statistic that 90% of community projects fail within their first year. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> So if you're in that first year, maybe you've made it to year two, congratulations. Thank you for this undertaking. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And I would encourage you to connect with and form relationships with as many other communities as possible, the established ones, the ones who have made it through, because those are going to be your best teachers. Um, They won't have all the answers for what is applicable in your situation because it's really each community is very unique each community has a very different culture and a few things to keep in mind uh, based on what we have noticed as as the foundation for intentional community in terms of what people write to us about some of the challenges they're experiencing is to really make sure you have clear, really clear written agreements with Mm. all of the individuals in your community and clear written agreements regarding how you will make decisions and what what you will do when um, those decisions are broken or you get into a conflict with other residents. It's not enough to think, oh, we're just friends, we'll figure it out. Um, because we, mm-hmm. we've seen time and again at FIC that, you know, communities that don't have these clear policies written down, then they just are, are, <laughs> are opening themselves up for many more headaches down the line. Um, 
And, and focus first, the other thing I would say is focus first on your culture as a group. I think mm -hmm. there's this tendency to think of community building like a development project where, and, and you're a civic engineer, so you might know, you know, you go out there, you hire the developer, you get the land, you design what the community is going to look like, and then you move into it. Well, no, 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 no. First, start with the group of people. Make sure you have really good, clear relationships with everyone in the group and work on building your shared culture and your shared identity. Because whether you buy a piece of land together or not, you can start that community building process um, right away. And many groups will spend years cultivating this before buying land. But by the time they mm. get to the land, then they're set because they are a community. They're not creating one. They are one. And now they're just... Uh, producing the physical manifestation totally, totally. of the work they've done over the years. Yeah. So, and, and please, you know, write to us. Um, we have lots of articles on IC.org. We've, um, we've uh, had a good connection with Communities Magazine for, for decades. We were the, the publisher of Communities Magazine. So we have the whole digital archive of that on our website. Um, and there's, there's stories from people who have um, gone through the process of finding, uh, joining, and building community. Wonderful. And the most serious question of them all, what, if, you were to be the, <laughs> if you were to be any animal, what would you be and why? <laughs> this oh. is a, more of a trademark question at the end of each interview. Oh, wow. Ah. Uh. I haven't thought about that in a while. I think <laughs> I would like to be a bird that can fly long distances because I like the idea of being able to see the world kind of in its entirety and just mm. have the freedom to go where I want to go <laughs> and also come back and have a nice, warm, cozy nest to be in and a place oh, man. You know? so like a migrating bird kind of <laughs> all right i like that well um cynthia how can uh, listeners reach you and see what you're up to and uh, follow what you're doing i'm on facebook and i have a website cynthiatina.com those are both good ways to get in touch with me awesome and the, of course, the links, all of the links that we've talked about will be included in the description. So you could also just click through there as well. Excellent. And thank you so much, Christopher. I've really appreciated this opportunity and I'm really grateful for your work with the Eco Village Library and creating these podcasts, getting out to talk to people. It's excellent, excellent what you're doing and uh, more support to you. Hey, thanks a lot, Cynthia. I greatly appreciate talking with you. There you have it, folks. So please follow the links, show Cynthia some of your love, and uh, check out what she's doing. She's doing intensely crazy, awesome stuff. So get your dose of inspiration and go on an eco-village tour. Also, I had a cool idea of sharing just people's lives on the podcast or a brief introduction. So send a voice message to um, Equal Village Library podcast through email, but I think you could do it through our anchor link as well. Um, anywho, send over an MP3, whatever, 
um, introducing yourself, where you're calling from, and uh, I'll be hosting on the next broadcast. Anywho, have a wonderful day. Send you all my love, and till next time. Ciao, ciao.